greetings and welcome to episode 20 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Korea and the Chinese World Order. Now every single time that I get to this topic where I want to talk about Korea, I always feel like I need to immediately go on the defensive and answer the question of why is Korea talked about so late in your narrative of East Asian history and for that matter Japan as well. Well, there is a good reason, and I'm going to be really blunt with you here, um, and I hope you won't be too offended if you have a particular interest in Korean or Japanese history. Here we go. Korea and Japan are relatively unimportant historically prior to the 16th or 17th centuries AD. Now, before you throw your tomatoes at me, hear me out. This is a history of East Asia, the East Asian world order. And we know already that when we're talking about that, what we're really talking about is continental East Asia. And in continental East Asia, what we're talking about is the Huaxia culture sphere and the peoples who interacted with that cultural sphere and attempted to harness control of the economic power of the Yellow and Yangtze River agricultural heartland. Okay? Now what that means is that the movers and shakers, or if you want to say the agents of dynamic change that had an effect well outside their own borders, most of that occurred in the in the agricultural heartland and on the northern nomadic steppe of continental East Asia. Okay, Korea and Japan are utterly fascinating if you have a pre-existing interest in Japanese culture, Japanese history, Korean culture. Maybe you have uh, your Korean American, Japanese American, and you have a particular interest in these places. And you're highly offended to hear me talk like this, that they aren't, that they are relatively unimportant from a historical perspective. What I mean by that is that in Korea and Japan are not producing agents of change for people beyond their borders, okay? When we talk about Korea and Japan and we assume that they have so much importance historically, what we're really doing is we're taking the 20th century nation-state paradigm of East Asia area studies, in which the 20th century sees Korea, Japan, and China as the chief powers of East Asia, and that paradigm says that Korea and Japan are hugely important in the modern era. And I would agree with you. I would say absolutely they are both extremely important in the modern era. And as this podcast goes on, we're going to start talking about the role of Japan, because Japan's going to play an enormous role in the modern era. Okay, and Korea will will have a little more prominence as well. But really the reason that people think that Korea should get more attention in the pre-modern era is because we're taking Korea's outsized and undeniable importance in the 20th century, in which it becomes extremely important, and then we're projecting that backwards in time and assuming that it always must have had some sort of importance. And therefore, if East Asia today equals China, Korea, and Japan, then East Asia 1,500, 2,000 years ago must also equal the pre-modern history of China, Korea, and Japan. And to that, I say no, no. That is false. Okay? The agents of dynamic change, the people and the places that created new ideas 
new customs, new political constructs that changed the known world outside their borders. I'm sorry, but 95% of those happened in the agricultural heartland and nomadic steppe of the East Asian continent. Okay? And so that's why, for a pre-modern East Asian class, I really don't talk about Korea all that much, really just today, and I don't really talk about Japan at all, because Japan is not influencing people outside of its own borders prior to the sixth, really prior to the 19th century. Let's be honest here. I know you can take issue, ticky-tack details with some of this stuff, but I'm talking big picture here, okay? This is a survey podcast of big picture themes, and on the big picture, our overwhelming majority of our attention is going to be on the East Asian continent, okay? That said, there are some interesting things about Korea that we can address in a pre-modern East Asian survey history, okay? It gives an excellent case study of the adaptation of the Chinese script, Chinese government, and Chinese ideology among a neighboring state that has pretensions of mimicking the Huaxia cultural sphere, but is geographically isolated just enough where it can have a distinct identity of its own and still regard itself as separate from that political sphere. Okay? It is a middleman for the dissemination of mainland Huaxia culture to Japan. All right, much of what's going to eventually end up in Japan, architectural styles, script, um, you know, clothing, all these sorts of things that will go through Korea. If you look on a map, Korea uh, will later be described as Japanese officials as sort of the dagger pointed at Japan. Um, and they regarded it then in the 20th century or actually 19th century as this threat that had to be neutralized and taken over, um, you know, that is the middleman, uh, the geographical middleman through which mainland Huaxia culture is going to be disseminated to the Japanese islands. Okay, Korea also plays uh, an occasional role in interstate intrigue in various wars, alliances, um, sometimes as a buffer zone, it will be referred to. And it will get involved in some of the major wars that go on. You just think about the Mongols. When the Mongols uh, attempted to invade Japan, they, they launched their invasion from Korea. Okay, uh, Korea will be referred to both by uh, Chinese policymakers and Japanese officials as the lips that protect their teeth, i.e. a buffer zone. Another proverb was well known to call Korea a shrimp among whales caught between China and Japan. Uh, that's more something that you would say as you get closer to the 19th century, however. Um, so, what Korea is, is it's basically a strategically positioned sedentary offshoot of the Huaxia heartland. Okay, it is an attractive target for more militarily powerful peoples, but it is rarely positioned to expand or influence people beyond the Korean peninsula other than themselves. Okay, and yet this same peninsula gives just enough isolation, it makes it just hard enough to conquer, that it will allow for a powerful dose of a defiant Korean identity. We're different, damn it. We may be Confucian, we may be uh, uh, part of the Huaxia cultural sphere, but there's something unique and different and special about us. And the fact that we're rarely conquered by outsiders proves that. 
Now let's talk a little bit about the history. This is, you know, the, the, the title of this podcast is Korea and the Chinese World Order. We're not discussing Korea for Korea's sake. We're discussing Korea within the milieu of pre-modern East Asia. And that means the Huaxia slash Chinese culture sphere. Okay. Um, what was Korea's political situation with regard to China? Okay. Well, that's an interesting question. In the 1880s, in the 19th century, Western and Japanese diplomats who were all of a sudden very covetous of Korea and wanted to put it under their political umbrella, they, tried, they, they saw that Korea had some sort of a close relationship with the Qing dynasty, i.e. China, but they, it, wasn't, it was sort of nebulous. They didn't know exactly what this relationship was. It seemed to be very similar and under the cultural and sometimes political sway of Beijing. But then other times it seemed to have a distinct autonomous identity. And so they said, are you or are you not a part of China? And the Qing dynasty diplomats said to Britain in 1861, they said Choson, referring to Korea, is a tributary of China. But as for said country's autonomy in its own politics, religion, prohibitions, and orders, China has never interfered with it. To Japan, the Qing dynasty diplomats said, quote, that Korea is a dependent state of China is known by all. That it is an autonomous country is also known by all. Huh, what? How can Korea be, be both dependent and autonomous? Well, it can be both dependent and autonomous within what's known as the Chinese tributary model of foreign relations. Okay? That's something we need to understand. The way that various Chinese dynasties conceptualized their interactions with other states, with other peoples outside of their own tactics. Uh, political control, people they actually taxed themselves, was through the tribute system. All right, the tribute system, uh, uh, known in Chinese as Chaojin, okay, literally to make a pilgrimage and pay respect in the imperial capital, wherever that is, whether it's Beijing, Nanjing, Chang'an, Hangzhou, whatever. Okay, um, the tribute, the tributary system, was premised on the idea that whoever had the title of Son of Heaven, whoever was the preeminent power on the East Asian mainland, was the center of the universe, was the most civilized, the best person or state in the world. Okay? And, uh, there's no such thing as equality. There's no pretense of equality. Okay? The tributary model says there is one preeminent power, the Son of Heaven, and everyone else is inferior to him. And they are supposed to come to his court and pay him tribute. And in return, he will be magnanimous. He will recognize their titles, their autonomy, after they give him gifts. And then send them away and they'll have a cordial relationship in which a younger brother recognizes the superiority of an older brother and whatnot. Okay? That's the tribute system. Now, why do other powers accept this? Because many of these other powers will say, you know, whatever, you're not better than us. Come and, come, 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 come and get us and defeat us on the field of battle if you think you're so special. But they do it anyways, because it's in their interests to have the right to make annual or semi-annual or triannual pilgrimages to the Chinese imperial capital, trade your own goods from your country all along the way at tax-free rates, make a nice profit, and then go back home and tell everyone else, the son of heaven has recognized me as the preeminent ruler of our land. That gives you prestige. That buttresses your own authority. Okay, so the tribute system is this sort of flexible, deliberately ambiguous model of relations between two separate states. 
And Korea is one of these states that has an interest in engaging this tribute model in which they acknowledge formally at the court of the emperor that you are superior to us. You're the elder brother, we're the younger brother. And in return, the elder brother, the emperor, says to the Koreans, we recognize your legitimate autonomous existence, although we still have a claim of superiority on you. That's how you can be both dependent in theory and autonomous in practice. The Chinese tributary state model. Okay, now, the history of Sino-Korean relations depends on your definition of China and Korea. <laughs> okay, when does China start? When does Korea start? They aren't being referred to by these names 2,000 years ago. They have very different names. And as we know, every couple hundred of years, the customs, language, you know, all kinds of things change enough every single place in the world that I personally, maybe you disagree, but I personally, Professor Jacobs, has a very difficult time accepting that we use the exact same name to refer to people separated by 500 years. Enough change has taken place that it's my opinion that we need to have come up with different terms. That's why I like referring to Chinese dynasties rather than eternal unchanging China to recognize that change has taken place. Well, the same thing with Korea as well. There are stories, apocryphal stories, about nobles from the Zhou dynasty, that's 1,000 to you know, 700 BC, emigrating to the Korean peninsula, obviously it wasn't called the Korean peninsula then, and starting their own kingdoms there. Okay, there were other tales about a refugee from the state of Yen in the 2nd century BC fleeing to the peninsula and founding a state. All right, these, are, I, these stories are intended to give some sort of a genealogical legitimacy to future states on the Korean peninsula as saying we were founded by, you know, one of the ancient Huaxia states. Okay, and therefore our lineage goes back to the most superior civilization on earth. We have a connection with them. Okay, the best analytical framework for understanding the relations between the Korean Peninsula and the East Asian mainland is to, you know, look at sustained influence from uh, 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 Huaxia dynasties that existed on the Korean Peninsula and are provable through the archaeological record. This puts us with a verified Han Dynasty imperial presence throughout the Korean Peninsula that begins in the in 108 BC with one of some of the first conquests from the Han Dynasty on the Korean Peninsula. That's at the end of the second century BC. Okay, about a hundred years after the Han Dynasty has been founded. And then they established military garrisons on the Korean Peninsula. That's verified. We know that happened. Okay, now the actual degree of Han Dynasty control on the Korean Peninsula is unknowable. But it is undeniable that from this point forth, about the 1st century BC, many people on the peninsula are eager recipients of Han Dynasty script, the Chinese writing, Han Dynasty thought, ideology, Okay, literature, the Confucian canon, statecraft, art, architecture, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then about four or five hundred years later, through Korea, all these exact same influences will start to take root on the Japanese islands as well. Okay, now, of course, it doesn't mean these things blossom uniformly throughout the entire realm immediately. In fact, as late as the 13, 14, 1500s, we're still seeing evidence of what would be referred to as unorthodox customs persisting in the face 
of orthodox Confucian ideas, customs, religion, and all of these sorts of things. Okay, so it's always a mishmash and amalgam of old and new traditions. All right, but you know, gradually the snowball effect begins in the first century BC, um, and over the next 1500 years, you'll have a constant flow of uh, exchange between the Huaxia cultural sphere and Korea. You know, how deeply this cultural exchange actually takes root is something that you have to examine in greater detail, not in today's podcast. Chinese characters are systematically begun to be introduced during this time period as well, during the Han Dynasty, but they really take off with the spread of Mahayana Buddhism, again, through a Chinese intermediary. Okay, Now, what this means is that for the next 1,500 years, most Korean documents will be written not in any form of Korean, but in classical Chinese, referred to as Hanja. Okay? It's not that they're using Chinese to write Korean sounds or Korean words. They're literally writing in what to them is a foreign dead language, classical Chinese. All right, that's the most prestigious script out there. Why would you invent a brand new script if the Chinese script already exists? That's the very definition of civilization. Okay? You don't get the... Hangul script, the native Korean manufactured uh, script that is be- uh, more suited to expressing the uh, uh, more complex grammar and uh, syllables of the Korean language, you don't get the Hangul script until the 15th century AD. And even then, it's not immediately prestigious on a par with the Chinese classical script. It just, you know, coexists alongside it, usually for what is considered more lowbrow things, okay? For, you know, official documents of state and high literature and poetry and whatnot, classical Chinese is still being used, okay? And that's really not going to change until the 19th and 20th century, all right? And it's only today that states like North Korea have basically tried to do away completely with Chinese characters, although you still see Chinese characters mixed in with Hangul in South Korea today. Um, Now, the history of interactions between the Korean Peninsula and the Chinese world order in, you know, sort of the first millennia, millennium after the Han Dynasty military conquests, um, you know, from about 200 to 900 AD, what you have are various competing kingdoms on the Korean Peninsula who form shifting and very confusing alliances with everyone else to try and defeat their rivals and take over the peninsula. In other words, it's politically divided, it's politically fragmented. And sometimes, whosoever is the mainland Huaxia power on the continent will try its luck at allying with one of these powers on the Korean peninsula and seeing if they can conquer the entire peninsula like the Han Dynasty briefly did, but they usually fail. The Sui Dynasty, which uh, is in power for about 30 years from 589, I think, to 618, I believe it is, uh, they, they try to invade Korea and they suffer a disastrous defeat. And some historians think that the Sui uh, failed invasion of the Korean peninsula is largely responsible for why that dynasty only lasted 30 years and then was overthrown and replaced by the Tang Dynasty, which lasts for another 250 years. Uh, the Tang Dynasty will come to power and they will ally with one of the of the powers on the Korean Peninsula known as Silla, S-I-L-L-A. And Silla, uh, with Tang Dynasty help, will manage to defeat its allies 
and then sort of unify, well, he, not, you can't unify what was never unified before, uh, take over control of the entire peninsula. And the Tang Dynasty will then try to dominate Silla, thinking, hey, you know, we help them gain power, they're going to be our vassal. But again, they find that it's very difficult to do that, and Silla is largely an autonomous power. Uh, you know, that exist at largely the same time as the Tang Dynasty. The Tang Dynasty, as I said, I think it's, what is the official date? 618 to 907, I believe it is. And the Silla Dynasty is 675 to 900. So basically the 600s through the 900s, you have Silla and Tang coexisting with one another. Lots of trade, lots of merchants going back and forth, diplomats, religious monks, scholars, Korean Korean scholars worked for the Tang government. We know that they actually made pilgrimages there to Chang'an and Luoyang and worked for the Tang government as well. Now, the next major state that you need to be aware of um, is called the Koryo Kingdom, K-O-R-Y-O. And this exists from about 900 to 1400 AD. This is the successor to Silla, and Koryo Kingdom will provide our modern-day English name of Korea. Okay, now the Koryo Kingdom will institutionalize and formally abide by the, the tribute model of relations between states in East Asia. Okay, and, and the reason that they're engaging the tribute system is they see it as a pragmatic means of avoiding outside domination by giving superficial obeisance to an outside power that wants your compliments. Okay, the founder of the Koryo dynasty acknowledges a significant cultural debt to China, but then he says, quote, Our country occupies a different geographical location, and our people's character is different from that of the Chinese. Here's this defiant Korean Peninsula identity coming out. Hence, there is no reason to strain ourselves unreasonably to copy the Chinese way. Okay? We don't need to strain ourselves unreasonably. Now, they will strain themselves reasonably to copy the Chinese way, but he's saying here, let's not go too far out of our way to be exactly like the Chinese are, because we are slightly different. So, the Koryo Kingdom had no problem giving tribute, paying tribute, to any outside power that threatened them as a means of retaining their own autonomy. When you're a tiny little peninsula caught between a behemoth to the west... And then potentially a fairly, you know, Japan, the Japanese islands to the east, even though they're not really unified, it also has a lot of latent military and economic power. Um, you need to come up with a strategy to keep outsiders out of your peninsula. And the Koryo dynasty was the first one to come up with the idea. The tribute system is, is a means of manipulation to maintaining our autonomy. Okay, a good example of this is that after the Tang Dynasty falls, you have northern nomads battling it out with the Song Dynasty from the 900s until the 1200s, until eventually uh, uh, Genghis Khan and his grandson Kublai Khan will, will uh, establish the Yuan Dynasty in the late 1200s, all right, uh, 1279 to 1368. Now, the Khitan, the Khitan are a nomadic people from the northern steppe, okay? The Khitan will found the Liao Dynasty, the Jurchen peoples, the ancestors of later Manchus, will found the Jin dynasty, and each and both the Khitan and the Jurchens will sort of cut off the northern part of the Song dynasty realm. The Song will originally have much of what we think of as modern-day China, at least the heartland, and when the Khitan and Jurchens successively invade the northern half of China, the Song dynasty will flee down to the south, and they'll move their capital from Kaifeng in the north down to Hangzhou in the south. 
All right, so you have a confusing mix of several major powers, both nomad powers and sedentary southern states um, in power on the East Asian continent from the 900s until the 1200s. Gokoryo Kingdom gives tribute to all of them. Okay, there is, we have a, a, a description of this strategy from the 15th century in which one of the Korean rulers was looking back at the strategy of the Koryo dynasty and acknowledged the wisdom of this strategy and said, quote, When someone serves a large nation but brings destruction upon his own people, it is because he has not thought carefully about how to deal with the situation. In the era of Koryo, our ancestors served the Song in the south and served the Jin in the north, referring to the Jurchens. When they paid tribute to the Song, they hid this fact from the Jin. When they paid tribute to the Jin, they hid this fact from the Song. If you consider this from an ethical point of view, it might not seem correct, because he's talking about the tribute system. This is a a moral uh, transgression of the tribute system. But seen from the point of power, it was the means to preserve our people. If it were not like this, if they served the song and broke off with the gene, then the people of the whole nation would become like fish and meat because the gene would have invaded them. Okay. The Ryukyu Island Kingdom, later known as Okinawa, would also pl- uh, adopt a very similar strategy. All right. Uh, you know, a, a, a marginal people and a marginal power without the means really to resist a full blown invasion from any outside power and yet nonetheless positioned relatively equally between China to to the west and Japan to the north, will also adopt a very similar strategy of trying to pay tribute to two separate powers and not letting either of these two powers know that they're playing a double game. Okay, the only time this strategy really fails is when the Mongols, the great Mongol conquest, comes in to the Korean peninsula, conquers the Koryo kingdom, takes both its king and its nobles and elites hostage in Beijing. And that's really one of the only times that Korea is going to be conquered uh, fully by an outside power until the, uh, until the Japanese do it in the 20th century. Okay, the Mongols and the Japanese, that's really the only times that the Korean Peninsula gets fully conquered by an outside power for a long period of time. And during the Mongol dynasty, the Mongols will be resident in in military garrisons throughout the peninsula, and the Koreans would be obliged to assist the Mongols in their disastrous invasion of Japan. By the end of the Mongol era, there has been so much intermarriage with the Mongols that the rulers in Korea... The so-called Korean rulers, the kings and the nobles, were probably genetically, biologically, you know, in their blood, more Mongol than they were Korean. Okay, it was known that they dressed in Mongol fashion, adopted many Mongol customs. Okay, another reason why I hate using terms like Koreans or Chinese or Japan to refer to things, you know, that are timeless over a two or three thousand year period. Because if you if you were dropped in to Pyongyang, in 1300 AD, and you weren't married to a Mongol princess, and wore Mongol clothes, and slept in Mongol yurts, you would be seen as an outsider in Korea, okay? Because that was the fashion of the day. The Koreans were more Mongols than they were Koreans, at least the upper crust of society, obviously not the general peasantry. And our last era, the Choson era, this is after the Mongols fall. Okay, the Choson era will last from 1400 to 1910. All right, now this will be founded by a Koryo general, 
Now, you can see the continuity already. Okay, you don't have a whole lot of dynasties. You have Scylla, you have Koryo, and now you're going to have Chosun, and that's it. Okay, the uh, uh, Chosun dynasty will be founded by the Koryo kingdom general who had been sent to assist the Mongols in their battles against the rising southern Ming state. The Mongol Yuan dynasty, Kublai Khan's Mongol Yuan dynasty, will be overthrown in 1368 by what will become known as the Ming dynasty under the leadership of the peasant leader Zhu Yanzhang. Okay, now the Mongols, because they, they have domination over Korea, they will tell the Koreans, send in some troops, send in some battalions to help us suppress this uprising of Zhu Yanzhang in the south. And a Koryo general will be sent to the East Asian heartland to help the Mongols against the rising Ming state, and this Koryo general will turn right around and to say, I'm going to overthrow the Koryo king who is enthralled to the Mongols, because I don't think the Mongols have the power to intervene anymore. They have their hands full in the south. And he is able to overthrow the Koryo king. And then by the time he's in power, the new Ming dynasty has risen up and overthrown the Mongol Yuan dynasty. Zhu Yanzhang is the first emperor of the Ming dynasty. And so this Koryo general sends an emissary to Zhu Yanzhang, who sets up his capital in Nanjing in the south, and asks for confirmation. He want, you know, is going to engage this new this, the tribute system once more to maintain some autonomy from the East Asian mainland. And Zhu Yanzhang obliges and gives them the appellation of Chaoxian in Chinese, Chaoxian, Choson in Korean. The very name of the Choson dynasty will be taken from a Chinese term that is created by the Ming emperor. And for the next 500 years, Korea will be known as the model tributary state of first the Ming dynasty and then eventually the Qing dynasty that succeeds the Ming dynasty in the 17th century. Korea will consistently send three to four tribute missions per year. These will all be overseen by the Board of Rights um, in the uh, Ming and later Qing capital, which starts out in Nanjing but eventually will be in Beijing for the remainder of the imperial era. Okay, the Board of Rights is in charge of these so-called foreign relations, um, you know, because Relations between states are seen as a form of ritual. Okay, it's, there is no department of state. <laughs> okay, um, when you have relations with foreigners, with other states, they are coming to your state to pay tribute to you. That is a ritual of acknowledging your superiority that they're engaging in. So it's the Board of Rights, which is also in charge of education, uh, because education is learning about the rights as well, because the rights govern everything, remember? Uh, the Board of Rights oversees these tribute missions. Now, sometimes the Choson kings, the emissaries, will be forced to bring what we might think of as rather humiliating goods. They'll be forced to bring girls for the emperor's harem. They'll be forced to bring boys who will be made into eunuchs. Okay, this is the tribute that they have to present to the Ming or the Qing emperor when they uh, arrive in, Be in Beijing. But sometimes it was also just, you know, regular fabrics and goods and expensive textiles. Most Choson elites competed to go on these tribute expeditions because they were extremely lucrative. As I said before, the Ming or the Qing dynasty pays for most of the expenses. They want everyone in the known world to acknowledge that, you, that we're, we're the son of heaven. We're the best. And they usually paid for the emissaries to come to Beijing. And all they got in return were some gifts that, you know, were not equivalent to the money that they spent in sponsoring this tribute mission to the court. Ideologically, this costs a lot for the Chinese emperor. 
Okay, but they're willing to do it. And most of the emissaries from other states are thrilled to have the opportunity to go to Beijing. You mean I get to bring all of the products from my country and sell them tax-free all the way to Beijing and most of my trip is paid for? Oh, yes, I am totally going on the tribute mission. And that's why Chosun elites competed to go on these. And I said, all I got to do is go in there and, you know, kowtow my head to the ground three times when I meet the emperor. I can do that. Okay, I, I, I can totally do that. In return, the Koreans accepted the explicit hierarchy of a superior China and an inferior Korea. And this was expressed in patrimonial Confucian terms. He, uh, 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 the Ming or the Qing emperor is the father, and we are the son. The Choson used the official Ming or Qing Chinese calendar. They, used similar, they adopted similar dress, similar architecture, government institutions, and the Ming or Qing officials would travel to the Korean Peninsula to oversee the investiture ceremony of new Choson royalty. When there was a birth of a, of a son, a, a, a prince, a successor to the throne, or when the king died and he was going to be succeeded by his son, whatever, this had to be formally uh, consecrated by a Ming or Qing emissary. And there's no doubt who was on top. Okay, The Choson king would be forced to come out to meet a low-ranking Ming or Qing official. It's not the emperor of China who's coming to the Korean Peninsula. It's a low-ranking Ming or Qing official. And the Chosun king has to come out to greet him, prostrates his body on the ground while a decree is read out. And then he gives a lavish feast to the envoy. Okay. Generally speaking, however, most Korean elites, Chosun elites, were flattered to be regarded as model sons of the Chinese world order. And they often sneered at other tributary states that they thought were less civilized and crude. In this sense, even though Korea is way up in the northeastern part of East Asia, their cultural attitudes generally resembled what we referred to in the episode on empires of the steppe as a southern Han state, not a northern hybrid state, even though they're often, uh, their geographical proximity is very close to nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples. Their, their, their geographical isolation on the Korean peninsula allows them to adopt a similar cultural attitude that southern Han states tended to have. And they looked down on what they referred to as the northern barbarians, all right, the Jurchens and the Manchus. There was a discourse in, in Korea that these were barbarian peoples inferior to the Koreans, who are the true Confucians. Sometimes the Choson elites would say, we're preserving a purer version of Confucianism than the Manchu Qing dynasty preserves. And of course, the Koreans looked eastward towards to the Japanese islands, and they regarded the Japanese as barbarians as well. You're not nearly as civilized as we are. Civilization e being equal to their idealized version of the Huaxia culture sphere as interpreted by a southern Han state, which is essentially what the Choson dynasty is. Okay. Now, the strategy of this tributary system the goal was to facilitate minimal but profitable contact with major outside powers, do whatever painless ritual performances are required of you to keep the outsiders from actually trying to rule the peninsula themselves. The Choson elite said, if all we get is a low-ranking Ming and Qing civil official, not even a military official, who comes out to our peninsula and recognizes our new king, and then he, we, 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 you know, we, 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 we feed him, 
and then he goes back home, that's painless. That is better than having an entire army come onto our peninsula and conquer us. And in, and in return for this Korean sycophancy, really, I don't know, sycophancy is a kind of a, a harsh word, uh, for Korean loyalty, let's put it that way, in return for Choson loyalty, the Ming Dynasty came to their defense. When a Japanese warlord, on the eve of the establishment of the Tokugawa era, a Japanese warlord did attempt to attack Korea in the 1590s. In the wars that led up to the establishment of the Tokugawa era, one of the Japanese warlords actually invaded Korea, and the Ming Dynasty came to their defense as one of the most loyal and model of their tributary states. Okay, so it could pay off in a positive sense as well in the form of military support. The Koreans knew that the only time outsiders come to our peninsula is when they want to exploit us or our resources. In that sense, they had something very much in common, again, with the Han agricultural heartland of the south of the Yangtze River Delta. The key difference was that that, the Han heartland there was a helpless, exposed zone, whereas the Korean peninsula is a somewhat more defensible peninsula. You would not refer to the Korean peninsula as an exposed zone. That is a protected zone by the ocean to the east and south, by mountains to the west, and a narrow little entrance point as well. Okay. Now, this strategy worked well up until the 1880s, playing off outside powers, paying tribute to every, anyone and everyone. But then in the 1880s, when Japan, knew, you know, undergoing the process of Western industrialization, Japan will start to try to exert more definitive control over Korea, much more control than the Qing dynasty or any Chinese dynasty had ever done before. And Japan will begin in the 1880s to shift Korea's center of gravity to the east for the first time ever. It had always been looking towards the West, towards the Huaxia cultural sphere, and in the late 19th century, Japan will wrench it towards the East. Korea will attempt still to play the Qing dynasty against Japan in these, you know, fateful years in the late 19th century, and that will eventually lead to China being drawn into a conflict with Japan, and the 1895 Sino-Japanese War will actually be take place in and around Korea, and it will, the pretext for the war will be about Korea. All right, that ambiguous relationship that Korea has with outside powers is finally negated. It finally disappears in the late 19th century, and Ch China and Japan are going to clash definitively over Korea, and it ends with Japan winning and Korea being fully incorporated and exploited into the Japanese empire. Um, now, to go beyond that, uh, we're many episodes away before we get into the Japanese empire, but trust me, we will cover the Japanese conquest and incorporation and policies in Korea um, for the first half of the 20th century in a later podcast episode. For now, we're going to look ahead to our next episode, which is going to be a fascinating topic, Zheng He and the Maritime World. Zheng He being the Ming Dynasty eunuch who ended up leading seven expeditions to Southeast Asia, India, and eventually the east coast of Africa. Lots of misinformation about who Zheng He was and what his voyages were all about. We're going to clear it all up in the next episode. I hope you'll join me. 